like to go, first of all, today back into the oldie moldy Testament, which uh, some people feel is what it is now, and we'll find that it is not, but pick up a principle that will be everywhere we look in the Bible. Back in the book of Numbers, and beginning in chapter 32, here's a story of Reuben and Gad who were on the east side of the Jordan River and really didn't want to go into the promised land at this point because they saw that there was good cattle grazing on that side of the river. So they came to Moses and asked him if they could have their possession over there. Now Moses immediately had the thought that these people don't want to go to war to liberate the country. They want to stay on this side, let us fight for our inheritance, and they have theirs in this land that we have already helped them liberate. So he said to them in verse 7, And wherefore discourage you the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Eternal has given them? Thus did your fathers when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. So he quoted history to them. And when they had gone up into the valley and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel, that they should not go into the land which the Eternal had given them. So God became very upset at that time, and he said, Surely none of the men that came up out of Egypt from twenty years of old will go into the promised land. Save Caleb and Joshua, for they have wholly or fully followed the eternal. And that's going to become a critical phrase in today's sermon, to fully follow the eternal. Now I want to go back for a moment here and pick up uh, Numbers 20 before we continue here. You might hold your finger there. Uh, Numbers 20 and verse 7. And here uh, God spoke to Moses saying, take the rod, and you're familiar with the story, so I won't spend a lot of time reading it, but he told him to speak to the rock before their eyes. And Moses took the rod from before the eternal as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said to them, hear now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses was a very humble and very meek man, and yet even his meekness and humility apparently had some limits because he got upset, and perhaps the we here was something that bothered God when he said, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, perhaps showing little temper, perhaps going further than God had said, and not doing it exactly in the way which God had told him to do it. And the water came out abundantly. Now God honored the office of Moses, even though Moses didn't follow instructions to the T. But Moses suffered a personal penalty for this. The congregation drank, and their beasts also. Now the people did also suffer, in that their leader was not allowed to go into the promised land with them. And the Eternal spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you have believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, to set me aside as the one who provided, you set yourself up a bit. Therefore you shall not bring this congregation to the land which I have given them. What a penalty. After looking forward all this time through life to going into the promised land, he could not go because of perhaps a fit of temper there, whereby he did not follow exactly, fully, and wholly what God had told him to do. Now let's go back to Numbers 32 and pick it up in uh, verse 17, where Gad and Reuben said, we, were, we, will, we ourselves will go ready armed before the children of Israel until we have brought them unto their place, and our little ones that shall dwell in the fenced cities because of the inhabitants of the land. 
So they agreed to go and fight with Israel. So Moses told them this. If you will do this thing, if you will go armed before the Lord to war, and will go all of you armed over Jordan before the Eternal until he has driven out his enemies from before him. Here's the condition for staying on that side. And the land be subdued before the Lord, then afterward you shall return and be guiltless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But notice verse 23. If you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. So there's a strong warning attached here. Was their heart going to be in fighting for the land for someone else? They had their wives and children and animals on the other side of the river. Were they going to shrink back? Would they stay in the back lines, or would they come forward? Would they fight just as wholeheartedly as if they had no land themselves already and look forward to the same inheritance that the rest of the Israelites had? That was a question. Moses saw it and warned them about it. We must obey fully whatever the sin is that we have. It will be found out. We'll see that as we go through. Now let's go to chapter 33. In verse uh, 51, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you're passed over Jordan to the land, you shall drive the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their molten images and quite pluck down all their high places or places of worship. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell there, and for I have given you the land to possess it, and you shall divide the land by lot and so on. Verse 55, But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those who you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. As history turned out, they did not drive all the inhabitants out. They did not destroy them all, as God gave them directions at times. And they became a thorn in the sight of the Israelites. They intermarried. They caused problems of all kinds and did not wholly or fully follow the instructions of God. They went in, they did what they thought was necessary to take the land, but they didn't follow through with everything that God had told them to do. I'm sure you can tie this in with what's happening today in the church and not following fully and wholly what God has outlined for us to do. And you can look back in your own life and see what has happened to you as we begin to depart more and more and more from the Word of God and get back into secularism and, to, and into Protestantism. Uh, Judges 2, chapters, or verses 2 through 3, we find, I can find Judges here, And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. you know, we had that opportunity when we came into this country. God had given this land, whether we're talking Britain or the United States or other parts of the inheritance God gave us in the latter times, we are still under, as a country, the Old Covenant terms, because God has not offered the New Covenant to everyone yet. But we didn't do that, did we? 
We didn't drive the people who were living here ahead of us, the Gentiles, out of this country, and they have become, in one sense, a prick and a thorn in our sides. Now, I'm not talking racism here. Uh, the white supremacists have come to the fore now, realizing that we've given our land away as an inheritance to Israel, and uh, invited all kinds of foreigners in, even brought them in and enslaved them. And look at the uh, tension and the strife that we have in this country today, and it's getting worse, especially as these whites decide to take over again. And it's coming to a head until a crisis time, apparently very soon in this country. Now, I'm not saying any of these remarks is a racist. Uh, we are all one in Christ under the terms of the New Covenant, but this country was not settled, really, under the terms of the New Covenant. We are still answerable to God, in Deuteronomy 28, for blessings and cursings, if we follow the terms of the Old Testament as a national uh, sovereignty. But look what happens when you don't fully obey God. We have intermarried. We've caused all kinds of problems and confusion as a result. Notice uh, Hosea 8. Back to Hosea. And here in uh, verse 7, I want to pick this up. For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It has no stalk, the bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, a stranger shall swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now shall it be among the Gentiles as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. For they have gone up to Assyria. And we are beginning to pledge allegiance, I'm sure, to the Deutschmark, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. So that is the state that Israel finds itself in today. This is a prophecy for the end time, just as Deuteronomy 28 is a prophecy for that time and the end time. History now for them, it's still prophecy for us, and we're seeing it happen right in front of us. Notice uh, Deuteronomy 28 here very quickly. Uh, the, cause, the curse causeless shall not come. God doesn't have to bring a lot of it on us, brethren. Uh, here it is in Deuteronomy 28. It shall come to pass that you shall hearken diligently to the voice of the Eternal, your God. Fully, wholly, hearken diligently to God. Then he is going to bless us. And I don't have time to go through all the blessings and cursings here. But he says, verse 13, The Lord shall make you the head and not the tail, and you shall be above only, and shall not be beneath. If that you hearken to the commandments of the Eternal, your God, which I command you this day. Verse 15, but it shall come to pass if you will not hearken to observe all his commandments and his statutes which I command you this day, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And you can re review those for yourself as a country. You go through Deuteronomy 28 and it's just a litany of what is occurring today. Very obviously, uh, for today. I read an article in the paper, oh, just the other day, the, the Ebola scare that's going on in Africa. Uh, this article said that the homegrown problems are scarier than that Ebola virus, which is uh, very uh, damaging and, and can kill. But uh, we've used so many antibiotics and had so much stuff stuffed into us that it's mutating so fast they can't keep up with it, and the scientists are really scared about what's happening here. Does God have to bring this? Or are we finding out 
that our sins will surely find us out by pumping things into our bodies that really should not be in our bodies. The curse causeless shall not come. It's interesting what's happened. I saw on the news that uh, the government and others have started saying that it seems like all these little groups and the militia and so on uh, believe in British Israelism. And we know that we are the chosen people of God in this country. Uh, could we get tired with that same brush? I think it's very likely that we will, even though we don't have those same feelings. And I'm not uh, saying here that we ought to have an insurrection. I'm just saying we didn't do what God told us to do, and we're reaping the results. Christ will take care of the problems in this country. Uh, it isn't up to us to do it, as those who don't understand this are trying to do something about it. But it's really not our problem, except that we live in it, and we have to survive, and we have to overcome, and do what God wants us to do. Now let's flip over to the New Testament. I want to go to Galatians here, chapter 6, and verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. There's instruction for us, because things will get difficult. There will be hailstorms and lack of rain spiritually in our lives. But God tells us to faint not, but continue, for we shall indeed reap if we continue to sow to the Spirit instead of to the flesh. So you do reap what you sow. You can't get around that. If you have sins in your life, they will be found out sooner or later. Now let's go to Matthew 25 and pick it up there a little bit. Matthew 25, and beginning in verse 14, because here is the parable of the talents. The kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered them his goods. Now this pictures Christ who gave to the converted are his own servants. We are his servants. This wasn't to just any and everyone on the street, but to his own servants. And he gave each one of them uh, five, two, or one talent, depending on their abilities and so on. Now let's go down uh, those some increased it, some did not. Verse 24, Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you, that you were an hard man, reaping where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid your talent on the earth. There you have, that is yours. His Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reaped where I sowed not, and gathered where I have not strawed. Now how does he reap where he does not sow? Well, he gives us the talent, he gives us his Holy Spirit, he gives us abilities, he gives us knowledge of what needs to be done. He expects us to sow that seed, that talent, that ability. He expects us to increase it, because we're sharecroppers in that sense. He will reap us when he returns. So he gets a reward out of it. He will reward us if we produce, but if we sit here and don't do it, or do other things, or sit in fear, 
then we will have to answer. Now, look, I'm having a little difficulty here. You'll, you'll hear me pause. I look up to see you, and you weren't there. Uh, it takes a little getting used to talking just to almost to myself here. Uh, let's go back to Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. You don't set a candle under a bushel. You put it on a candlestick and give light to the whole world. And he says to let it shine. But what if that salt has lost its sharpness? What if it's been cut with something else, that it's bland? I've tried, uh, I forget now what products, but some kinds of sea salt or something. Sea, salt from the sea is very salty, but uh, some product they put out, I just couldn't seem to get enough on my food to make it taste the way I wanted to. It just didn't have that sharpness to it. That takes us back to Revelation 3, doesn't it? If you're, if you're not different, if there's no contrast, what do you have? He says we're supposed to shine. You go back to Revelation 3, and it talks about Laodiceanism and lukewarmness. I like my coffee hot. I like my water cold. And any warm coffee uh, has to go in the microwave or just simply get poured out. Can't handle it that way. And water needs to be cold to really satisfy. But you look at what is happening today in God's church in some areas, and there's not much contrast left. But just one of them. Become dull of hearing, dull of action, and nothing is happening. A tendency towards laxness, towards fudging on things, towards it's well, it's not really that important. Was it important back there with Moses when he struck the rock instead of speaking? Was it important that Reuben and Gad fight with Israel? He who is faithful in little is faithful in much. And it's these little things, brethren, that start to get away from us. And first thing you know, we're lax all over. Look at our society today. It's irreverent. It's disrespectful. It's discourteous. People talk about, well, you should have some common courtesy. What is common about courtesy anymore? That's an oxymoron to talk about common courtesy. I want to use an example here, because John has made it clear over a period of time, and we have new listeners that might not know this, that we all dress up for a church service, even in our homes. Now, that's been a difficult one in a way for us up here, just the family. It's all family, and there's no one else here. Uh, why really dress up? I'm sitting here today facing no one but some pictures on an oven with my wife and daughter behind me on the couch because to get to the, the microphone I need to be facing this direction. And uh, I'm sitting here all in a suit, all dressed up for the dance, and uh, there's no music playing. I'm sitting here almost, it seems, talking to myself. So why have a suit on? Why be dressed up? Well, we're not just coming before family. We're coming before the mountain that thunders. We're coming before the lightning. We're coming before God. And I want to use a simple example to, to make this point 
Remember the time when Moses went before the burning bush? There was no audience there. People of Israel were elsewhere. They were down in Egypt. He was alone at the bush. And God had to explain to him the protocol that should be at that point. Take off your shoes, Moses. You are on holy ground. He was alone with God, and yet he needed to be all dressed up. That is, without his shoes. <laughs> it being holy ground where God was. Now, Christ is with us in spirit, uh, tying us together on this phone network. And we should all be alert and alive and ready to listen because we are on holy ground. And that's why John insists that we dress up and treat this as if it were a regular church service with lots of people here. Because we're not here to impress people. We are here to come before God. And it becomes a very important thing. You know, your attitude is eventually going to show. Any sloppy approach before God will eventually out. It will just happen. A good tree produces good tr fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. There's nothing that you can do that is going to, to be hidden. I remember back not long before I came out of the Worldwide Church of God several years ago, uh, it had come to the point that this slackness and laxness was beginning to show. Uh, people's overall spiritual attitude came through in their general demeanor. They began not dressing up as much for church. And even if they dressed up, uh, they'd go across to the 7-Eleven before services started and buy a big 64-ounce Coke and uh, set it under their chair and they'd sit there and suck Coke all through the service. Or they'd be in and out uh, getting coffee, bringing their coffee in, setting it under their chair, once in a while kicking it over. Uh, that was bad enough. And then out came the Game Boys. Here are the kids sitting playing with their Game Boys uh, through church. And even, I recall, one uh, teenager would sit there, pop her feet up on the chair in front of her, and read a romance novel throughout the church service. Now, is that laxness? Children talking through the, through the whole service? Uh, not even, even the parents would lean over and say, be quiet, and the kids would completely ignore them. Uh, this was in uh, one particular case I'm thinking of with Deacon's children. Uh, never slowed down, just chattered constantly throughout the entire service. See where it leads? The place that there's total disrespect for each other and total disrespect for God. And it's just because they got a little bit sloppy, got a little bit slack, a little bit lackadaisical, and it began to show, or maybe their spiritual condition began to show physically, but the spiritual condition worsened as the physical condition worsened. The physical conditions worsened. That was... A catch-22. Let's go to James 3. <clears throat> James 3. And see. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. And if any man offends not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Verse 5, Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. And a tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defiles the whole body, and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of the grave. 
The tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. We bless God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. And then he talks about trees and salt water and how one cannot produce the other. Salt water and fresh and so on. You see... The tongue reflects the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Listen to someone long enough and you'll know them. Listen to them and you'll know their problems. Even if they're aware of this principle and they're on guard, if they talk long enough, they're going to tell you their difficulties. Uh, it, it all comes out in the wash. What goes around comes around. If we're slack and loose in what we're allowing our minds to think, sooner or later it's going to come out. You cannot hide from it. It's in there and it will out. What about a closet eater? Think, well, I'll sneak into the refrigerator. You can do that for a while, but sooner or later it's going to show, isn't it? There is a closet eater. There's someone who says, well, I don't eat very much. But obviously, somewhere they're getting some calories. What about a closet drinker? People have hidden their drinking problem for years and years with bottles in the back of the toilet and bottles in the bottom of the closet and bottles in the, uh, bottles in the back of the car, uh, bottles everywhere. But eventually, sooner or later, it comes out. Even if it's just the veins on the nose. Sooner or later, someone is going to tell by the way you act, the way you react, or you're going to wind up not hiding a bottle well enough. Someone is going to find out. A closet anything will appear. You can't hide anything. If you think you're being careful with a sin, you're hiding from people, uh-uh, doesn't work that way. Ecclesiastes 8, let's go to verse 11. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. God doesn't always jump right on us. He allows us to learn. He allows us to make our bed and to lie in it. But the laws of God and the principles, the laws of nature, the laws that he has set up on this earth eventually are going to catch up with you. If you happen to get careless on the edge of a cliff and fall off, it catches up very rapidly. Uh, but some of these things that we try to hide from others, hide from God, hide from ourselves, eventually are going to come out. Sometimes we're allowed to float with something. And how long do you float downhill or downstream until eventually it comes, comes out? Let's notice chapter, or verse uh, 20 now, of chapter 9. Curse not the king. No, not in your thought. Don't even think bad thoughts about the king or about a dignitary or about someone else. And curse not the rich in your bedchamber. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which is winged shall tell the matter. Does that mean that these sparrows and, let's say, these swallows flying around my house at the moment, if I say something uh, bad, are going to uh, suddenly go somewhere else and they're going to sprout voices and tell someone? No. It's just a figure of speech. What you are thinking, ultimately, is going to be brought out in the open. Now, that should scare all of us to realize that our thoughts, even, cannot be hid. If 
you watch people, you can tell over a period of time certain things about them. Are they slovenly? Are they slack in their approach to life and their approach to their jobs and their approach to God? Uh, it will show. It will show in their voices. You cannot hide what you are. And we've all heard the expressions. What you are speaks so loud, I don't hear what you're saying. And we all have things to overcome, and things that would be best hidden, but they can't be hidden. Second Corinthians 10 and verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Is this a constant? Is this a way of living, of thinking, of speaking? It's wonderful when you can do it, but we all have a battle daily to control every thought. Now, is that, does that seem stressful? <laughs> to think, I have to control every thought that goes through my mind. That is difficult. Well, it is stressful because it is difficult. And if we are truly seeking God and working to obey Him, we are going to be conscious of God throughout every day, every moment, every waking hour of our lives as to what is going into our minds, what is being processed inside our minds, and what's coming out our mouths. Because every thought needs to come to be the way that Christ thinks. When lust conceives, it brings forth sin. If we allow various materialistic thoughts to go through our minds, sooner or later, we're going to start going that direction. We're going to start going away from God. But he sits and ponders the hearts of men. He thinks about what is going through our minds, because he can read our minds. Colossians 3, verse 22. Servants obey in all... Uh, wait a minute. Let's pick it up in verse... Yeah, verse 22. Servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Men can't really read your mind, can they? But God can. And we're not here to impress each other, whether it be the way we dress at home on Sabbath since we're on a phone network instead of meeting with other people, and in some cases we are meeting with other people, or whether we're in a large congregation or whatever. We are not here to impress men. We are here to serve God. We are one-on-one -on -one with God. All the time. Character is what you do in the dark, is what someone had said at one point. I don't know who made the quote. But meaning, when no one is looking, when you're by yourself, what are you thinking when you're alone? What about when there's no one else around? What do you allow yourself to think or to do when other men cannot see what is happening? And God says that he numbers the hair of our head. That they are counted. Now, is he really that concerned about whether you're bald or not? I don't think so. Makes it easier to count. But if the very hair on our head is number, I, numbered, I feel that God is far more concerned with what's happening under the hair. And perhaps the very brain cells are also numbered. And certainly what's going through the brain cells that are there, uh, God knows about. 
and it will eventually show. You just can't hide from God. I, I sort of overlooked something I wanted to go back to, and maybe this is a little out of context, but uh, every idle word, every vain word that we speak, or every vain thought we think we're going to be brought into judgment for. And I, I look at this world, and they use God so loosely. They don't really worship God, most of them, but everything points to him. It, there are certain words on television, for instance, that they censor. Barnyard terms or various things uh, that, well, that word you can't use. You'll be off the air. The FCC, FCC will shut you down. But how often when a television is on do you hear someone in a sitcom or whatever say, Oh, my God. That's one of the commonest phrases in this world today. But God is holy. And some of these other words, while they really shouldn't be used and perhaps certainly should be censored, are nearly so bad as these things that they do accept and that everybody uses day in and day out. I hear people saying, holy cow, and all kinds of words and terms, and it goes to the barnyard from there, that they use just constantly making these things supposed to be holy. Perhaps holy cow is a slur against Christ's mother. Uh, I don't know. But God is holy, and his name should not be used loosely like that. People don't understand that. They have certain buzzwords that you can't use, but they can make that which is truly holy very common. And that attitude shows in our society that has departed from God and uses God as only lip service, but they don't really obey nor have the respect and reverence for God that they ought to have. And it's showing the further and further our country gets from God, the more slack and loose we are, the more new age and evolution that creeps in, the further and further we get, and God is just a byword. See what has happened. Be sure your sins will find you out. As we've taken God laxly and loosely, we're beginning to suffer for it. Proverbs 14:12. There is a way that does seem right, not long, but right to a man. But the ends thereof are the ways of death. It's the easy road. We're here to stand. Romans 5, 2, I won't go to that, but it says to stand in the grace of God. That shows resistance to gravity. It shows resistance spiritually. We have to stand because the way that man is going seems right. We're here to seek pleasures. We're here for hedonistic reasons, just to enjoy life. And we think that we deserve to enjoy life in America today. Well... Is that the end? Is that what we're here to pursue? If that's all there is, then bring out the booze, as the song said. Because if this is all there is, it is really not much fun. There's got to be something there to fight for. Let's go to Matthew 10. Christ makes very clear uh, the point that we're addressing today. Because whatever your sins are, uh, there's nothing going to remain secret, but only so long. You know, you look at some people, and, and their problems are obvious. Some men's sins go before, and some follow behind. You look at them, you look at their emotional state, 
and you can see that there's been some kind of abuse or problems or misuse in their lives, uh, that they've broken God's laws, and as a result, their emotions are all torn apart, and they have difficulties. And other people seem okay. Maybe they're just as big a mess as the one who has it written all over his or her face, but it doesn't show. Eventually, though, it comes out. If you're around someone long enough, uh, their problems begin to appear pretty obvious. And some hide it pretty much all their lives, but it will out. Matthew 10, verse 25. Fear them not, therefore, uh, or verse 26, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. You just can't hide. God says you can go to the tops of the mountains or the bottom of the sea, but I will find you. And your attitude, your approach to life is going to out sooner or later. Now notice what he says. Nothing can be hidden that shall not be revealed. What I tell you in darkness, that speak you in light. And what you hear in the ear, that preach you upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body, uh, soul and body in the grave. And then he talks about the hairs of our heads being numbered. Verse 33, But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before, before my Father which is in heaven. There's nothing secret. You can't hide in the woods without, or you can't walk in the woods without leaving signs. You leave tracks. Do we try to hide from the world? Now this is a, a turn on this coin. Hoping the world won't find us? Or do we live our lives in such a way that they can't miss us? We hold to the Sabbath. We hold to God's holy days. We understand British Israelism. We understand all the laws of God, and here we are trying very desperately to keep them in a world that is not keeping them. Can they find us? Can it be hid what we are, brethren? Now, we've approached this more from a personal standpoint of, uh, of our sins, not being able to be hid. But about what, what, what about what we really are as a people, as a people of God? We can't hide that either, can we? The world can find us very easily simply by what we're doing and what we're believing. And it's going to become more and more apparent as the contrast widens between what we are and what they are. But we're not supposed to go hide. We're not supposed to hide behind our doors and wait for place of safety and hope we get taken away from this. We are to boldly speak from the housetops. In other words, proclaim it. Don't straight back. Don't hide it. Say it. Live it and then say it. Does that scare you? That the church is not supposed to hide? That we're supposed to be right out in front, right on top of the house, top saying these things? If we do or are scared by that, perhaps we don't have the kind of faith we ought to have. Because the time is coming when we cannot hide. So may we better be what we should be. I remember when I uh, filed as a conscientious objector at age 18, the FBI did an investigation on me to see if I really was what I said I was. And they went back to where I had grown up, uh, they questioned my relatives, friends in the school, school teachers. I couldn't believe what they turned up on me. 
I'm, I'm not saying how bad it was. I'm just saying I can't believe what they were able to find out in finite detail about my life, good or bad. Things that I had forgotten were written in this report, several pages long, that I got from uh, the draft board. They gave me a copy. And my grandfather had comments about me, various ones. I, I don't remember everything that was in the report. But nothing was hidden. It just amazed me how much they could find. Do you think your life can be hidden, brethren? We are still somewhat anonymous as far as we know. How much does our government know about us? How much do people know about us that we don't know about? And you are always known more than you think you are, wherever you are. I found that to be true uh, even years ago, back in Worldwide. I thought I was just meeting in this little town with this little group of people, and no one knew we were there. But lo and behold, I found out the people in the community knew who I was and knew who I represented and what I was. Now, that's scary. When you think you are being anonymous, when you think you are hidden in the closet, when you think the world is not aware, and they are more than you realize they are. And I think it's very clear in the prophecies it's going to become even more clear who we are. Now, you can't undo what's already done. Whatever sins, whatever faults, whatever weaknesses we have exhibited in the past might come out when we, as uh, I refer you back to John's series on conviction, what we are will be seen. What we have been will be seen. You cannot hide that. The opportunity we have to show that this is really a conviction with us is change it now. So we can show clearly that, well, this is what I was, but this is what I have become. That's our only salvation. Because you can't hide anything. Look at what happens to politicians. They think, oh, well, nobody will ever find that. That, that skeleton's deeply buried. Somebody opens their mouth. Scandals abound. Because the skeletons do come rattling out of the closet. And you cannot hide them. And at the same time, God says to preach it from the housetops. And do you think we're going to be investigated? Do you think they're going to find out what has gone on in our lives and perhaps is still going on? Psalm 91. What the hell's my time? Oh, my. Uh, are we afraid to conquer the land? Psalm 91 goes through it and says, Don't be afraid of the terror that flies by night and, or the air that flies by day and various other things he goes through. Do we seek to save our lives, hide our lives? We can't hide. The contrast between us and them is going to blind them. It's so bright if we live up to Matthew 5. Uh, I don't have time to read all these scriptures. I've got several here. Psalm 90, verse 8 uh, says that the secret sins will shine in the light of your countenance. You can't hide them from God. They're not secret. He sees them all. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. Uh, well, I already read that one. Uh, Romans 2. Verses 1 through 7 is excellent. Let's turn back there very quickly. Uh, Romans 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whosoever you are that judges. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge do the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. He knows. And you will have to face truth. <laughs> 
And think you this, O man, that you judge them which do such things, and do, and do the same, that you shall escape the judgment of God? Can we hide, or despise you the riches of his goodness, and forbearance, and long-suffering? Do we take it slackly, and loosely, and lightly, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? To really draw close to God, and be led to repentance, rather than trying to hide, and despise, and become slack and loose about the things of God? Uh, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, and let's pick it up in verse uh, 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever does make manifest is light. Ashamed to even speak of the things that they do in secret. No fellowship with the world. How much do we bring it into our lives? How slack are we? How much do we watch on television? We see the violence, the sex, the profanity, the homosexuality, the weirdos on the talk shows. Is that? Well, some people have a TV on uh, 2 to 24 hours a day. Some never even turn it off. They even sleep with it on. They don't have a test pattern anymore to watch. Uh, they got channels that are on all night long. I remember someone in my family that was so addicted to television, he simply could not turn the thing off. This was years and years ago, and I'm sure this has changed now, but just to, to cite an example. I came in one night, and here was this individual sitting watching the test pattern. Been sitting there watching it. The TV had been off for an hour. Still sitting there staring at that test pattern. Why do you watch that television? It's there. Helpless before the television. Couldn't shut the thing off. And sit and watch a test pattern just because it's there. How much New World Order? How much subtle New Age demonism? How much evolution do we take in? How much sin do we see and hear and observe? Can you do that without it affecting you? How much can you do that without it affecting you? People are bored today. Why are we bored? Well, it's because whatever our hand finds to do, we don't do with our might. Someone who is really active, who has a life, to use the term, who is interested in what's going on, is not bored. Boredom is basically half-heartedness. Half-heartedness spiritually, half-heartedness about our jobs, about our lives, about our families, our marriages. We get bored with them because we're not really into it. How can you do something with your might when you're doing two or three other things at the same time? You're trying to work, and yet you've got the TV on trying to hear it, too. Or maybe you're trying to uh, study or, or do homework, and the TV's on. How can you concentrate on both at once. You can't. So you kind of half-heartedly do each, and the mind is divided, and that divided mind can't stand. And we become bored with life because everything's just sort of going on, and it's three or four or five things at a time, instead of putting our, our intensity and our wholeheartedness into whatever it is that we are doing. And therefore we get bored. You have to, let's see, I want to turn very quickly here to 2 Corinthians 9. 
Second Corinthians 9, and pick it up in verse 6. But this I say, he which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which sows bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. You have to purpose in your heart. You have to set your heart like you set a clock to seek God. You have to set your mind to work hard at your job and to be a profitable servant to your employer if you have one or to your own business if you have your own business. You have to work hard at whatever you're doing because that's the way to overcome Laodiceanism. It's the way to overcome boredom in our lives. Is to be excited and, and intensely interested in whatever it is that we're doing. We see athletes who are intensely training for what it is that they have to do. And they're the ones that rise to the top because they have the intensity. Those who don't have it get swept behind in competition. They, as Paul put it, they all run the race, but only one wins the prize. I was going to go into Ezekiel 33. Uh, I don't think I'll take the time to go back there at this point. But it's one of the most encouraging chapters that I think is in the Bible. Because it shows there that if you sin and you repent, God will not keep your sins. If you repent and you obey God and yet later in your life you depart from God, He won't remember your righteousness either. But then He encourages us to repent and to obey Him and he says it will all turn out for the good if we do. Very encouraging in Ezekiel 33, verses 8 to 19 and down to verse 28 even. Now let's go to Revelation 3, verses 14. What you are is just or become so very, very obvious. And if we think we can hide it, and we can be a closet sinner, or we can be lax, lax or lackadaisical about things, notice Revelation 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, or of uh, Laodicea. Verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. If we come before God, ultimately, we're to have on our wedding garments. We're to be clothed in righteousness. And yet God says that this group of people, if they do not repent, are going to appear naked before him. As if they had no clothes on whatsoever. Your nakedness shall appear. Can you hide? Ultimately, you might hide to some degree, but sooner or later, it will out. If it doesn't out till then, it will then. The attitudes, the slovenliness, the faults of the flesh, the lukewarmness, will certainly appear then because you won't have any clothes on and how many of us would like to walk out into public with no clothes? People have nightmares about it, and when the king comes out without any people's comment on his nice new set of clothes, but you won't be the king at that point, 
and no one's going to make that kind of comment. Your nakedness will appear before God and men if you are not clothed in righteousness. Now that's scary to contemplate, but that's what's looming just in front of us. Now let's go in closing to uh, Revelation 21 and verse 7. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So overcoming is the bottom line, as we would see in Revelation 2 and 3, and reiterated here. But the fearful, and unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The truth will come out. And if you are any of those things, if you're breaking the laws of God, that stuff's just not going to be in the kingdom of God. It has to cease at some point. Verse 27, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they are which are written in the Lamb's book of life. It just has to come to an end to that. And we hate it when we see it in ourselves, whatever our sins might be. At least I guess we do. Sometimes we tolerate it. Sometimes we enjoy it too much. What about our thoughts? Are they the way they ought to be? When are we going to clean them up? How are we going to clean them up? We have to live wholeheartedly before God and be very much aware of His ways. Revelation 22, verse 11. It comes to the point. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. It's going to get too late to change. You either are or you aren't. You either have or you haven't. You've done it or you haven't. Be sure your sins are going to find you out. Notice verse uh, 17. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Holy Spirit of God is very, very desirous for Christ to return to this earth. God, the Father, and Jesus Christ want very much to put an end to the violence, the sin, the problems, the lack of reverence and respect to Him and His universe and all that He has created and done for us. He wants to see this all come to an end and everybody respect each other and not have the caring that we have in our nation and in the world today as we struggle for peace and know not the way to peace. But our lust and our vanity do come out, don't they? They're coming out on a worldwide basis now, as everyone struggles for prosperity and materialism and peace of mind, and it just isn't there. It's disappearing so very, very quickly because of our sins. We can be sure that the sins of this world will be found out, and our personal ones will too. They will be made light in the holiness of God. But notice the Spirit of God says, Come, and the Bride says, Come. The bride has made herself ready at this point, and she so eagerly desires the return of Jesus Christ. And let him that hears say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now, do we still have spots on our wedding garments? Are they clean yet? Are they pure? Are they white? Are they holy? Are they righteous? I suspect that we all still have some spots and dirty places and some uh, hymns maybe that have come out. 
we're still a little slack, a little lackadaisical about a lot of things that are God has in his word. And then we have groups who are trying to do away with great sections of his word. And he warns us right here in the next two or three verses not to do that. Don't add anything. Don't take anything out. Just do what I have told you. So let us get ourselves ready, brethren, so that we as the bride can say, Come, I'm ready to walk down the aisle, or I'm ready to ascend at the moment in the twinkling of an eye when Christ returns and be ready for the wedding supper. Our sins are there. They cannot be hid. We must get rid of them, because be sure that your sin will find you out. That's the end of the transmission for today.